I'm Chris Biddle and welcome to Inside AgriTurf, a series of podcasts in which I will be talking to those at the heart of the farm and grass machinery industry. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Inside AgriTurf. Now, continuing the theme of talking with those at the head of the industry's representative organisations, I'm delighted to be joined this week by Paul Hemingway, the President of the Institution of Agricultural Engineers, IAGRI. IAGRI was formed in 1938 and is the professional body for all those working in agricultural engineering and associated disciplines. It is a registered charity affiliated to the UK Engineering Council who provide the pathway to internationally recognised accreditations such as Chartered Engineer, thus providing a passport for career development. After gaining his BSc Honours degree at Newcastle University, Paul joined a tractor dealership in the West Country as service manager before going on to Harper Adams University as a lecturer in agricultural engineering. He then joined JCB where he stayed for almost 30 years working in sales, service, parts and training roles. He spent three years living in New Delhi as Vice President Service for JCB India and before his retirement was Global Dealer Training Manager for JCB. And he has recently gone back to Harper Adams as a visiting lecturer in Agricultural Engineering. Our audio for this recording has a little background blemishes, but the message I hope is loud and clear. So Paul, Thank you so much for joining me. And how have the events of the last few months impacted on IAGRI and its membership? Well, Chris, they've been challenging times, haven't they? I think for everybody. Absolutely. Uh, and IAGRI is as affected by that as, of course, our, our colleagues and members in the universities and the research institutions. For ourselves, we've tried to be as creative as we can be. Uh, we've mounted lunchtime lectures for our members that have actually been well received and well presented actually so we've done three or four of those and we've got one or two more in the pipeline Uh, and we have decided normally we run an autumn conference and um, we have decided that we're going to take that into the virtual space this time so yes so we're doing a series of webinars from now basically through until the autumn and we'll culminate then in a um, group discussion to, to which delegates are welcome to attend Uh, in early November when we'll have all our speakers together online uh, able to pick up questions from the... uh, the, And and do uh, you think this might get to more members um, that might ordinarily uh, attend either branch meetings or conferences? Yes, look, when you look at it, I mean, we we can say that, you know, a virtual meeting is not as good as being there in person. But on the other hand, of course, our members, you know, we've got something north of 2,000 members, predominantly, but not exclusively in the UK. Um, you know, to get to a conference, you've, you've got to be within sensible geographic location unless you're going to be staying overnight for, for one or two nights. It's a big commitment. Uh, whereas the ability to log on wherever you are, I know we've got members literally from Cornwall to Orkney, and to be able to and attend a meeting on the same basis as any other member who may happen to be in Shropshire or Bedfordshire or wherever the activity is going on, you know, is really good. Uh, and, and I do know that you've got a number of overseas members, which uh, actually would pull them into the loop, presumably. Yeah, it would, absolutely. And, and of course, as with all these live webinars, we, we'll be putting the, um, 
the interviews online as well so that people can pick them up at a, at a time of day that, that tends to suit them. You've been in the training business, shall I say, for a lot of your career. Um, do, do, do you think that um, the, the, what's happened over the last few months will hasten perhaps the advance of virtual training or long distance training more so than it might have done otherwise? Yes, it's, yes, it's bound to for basic level courses. I think, and, and clearly we had a lot of discussions about this in my latter days at, uh, at JCB. If you want to do serious diagnostics, given the complexity of machinery you have today, there really is no substitute for being there, plugging the laptop in, looking at what's going on. And I struggle to see that that, that will be replaced in a hurry. If it has to be, it has to be. Will it be as good? For that particular sort of application, I doubt it. Presumably, it's a little bit, bit like this uh, debate about going back to work. I think everybody uh, uh, assumes that people will go back to work at some stage, but um, I think there is going to be a mixed economy in that, isn't there? Yeah, I think there is. Clearly, you know, in the ag business and the ag machinery business, you know, you can't run a factory from home. No. You can't service machines sitting at a desk at home. No. Uh, so our industry, if you like, and the agricultural industry in general, has kept going. It is one of those key industries, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, because it, because as I always say, the seasons never stop, do they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Ruth Bailey from AEA in one of your earlier interviews said she she didn't only clap for for the nurses and, and the NHS staff; she clapped for the farmers and the postmen and everybody else. And yeah, so I I think the industry's done an amazing job actually, and talking to dealers and manufacturers, they've uh, they've really stepped up to the plate, haven't they, this year? Yeah, they have. I mean, it's, you know, it came at a really challenging time. We've come through a really difficult, very very wet winter. Um, lots of farmers hadn't got their winter crops planted at all. You know, as soon as they wanted to get going, the lockdown came. Absolutely. Um, Life in farming goes on, doesn't it? The cows need to be milked, the crops have got to be planted and yeah. subsequently harvested. Yeah, um, yeah. There's no stopping the cycle. Do you feel that, um, I don't know whether you think that the industry has a, uh, an issue in, in attracting new talent, but I wonder whether the, uh, a pool of, of talented uh, engineers, particularly from industries like aerospace, uh, might be uh, attracted to our industry. And if it is, are, are we doing enough to attract them? Now, this is an issue that we've had in our industry for, for quite a long time. Um, but I think we are at a point now where, well, firstly, you know, one of the, the spin-offs of this, of this crisis has been that people have got more, more focused on food, I think, and particularly where it's coming from and how to get it when you're hungry, which, which in a sense, this country hasn't had to worry about for the last 30 years. No. March and April, when there was no bread on the shelves. <laughs> yes. That focused very, very quickly, you know. Yeah. And clearly there's a lot of new technology coming along, you know, whether it's electronics on tractors or whether it's, you know, vertical farming or completely different methods of growing crops. Yeah. Uh, there, there is something really different to attract a new wave. I mean, the challenge for us, obviously, is to get a more diverse intake because we are still very stereotyped as, a, as, a, as an industry. From In terms of age or, or skill sets or what? Pretty well everywhere you look at it, but... But I think certainly in terms of ethnicity, in terms of it's a male-dominated industry, which is fine, but yes. everybody's got different ideas, haven't they? And I mean, I know from my JCB experience, we've taken a lot of girl apprentices on 
and you know they're, they're tremendous along with fresh ideas ask questions that frankly we wouldn't have thought of asking and and there they are and um you know giving it some and it's great and some of them are really really successful on the on the courses and, and in the careers subsequently yeah, if you had to sort of sum up the attraction of agricultural engineering and let's lose that in its broadest sense how, how would you sell it to young people we're an island race we've got a fairly large population we need engineering in this country and, and again didn't the covid crisis just teach us that yes. you know we're you Where's the nearest ventilator shop to your house, Chris? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but there is a JCB factory literally out of my out of my window here where they made cases for ventilators. In yes. Yes. I wouldn't have thought they were going to do that in January. No. I think ag engineering as a discipline has got a real identity, hasn't it? It's something you can get your arms around. It's not narrow. It's a very broad church. Yes. You know, people will think about tractors. They'll think about farm machinery. But actually, it's about soil and water engineering, drainage, irrigation, farm buildings, post-harvest technology, environmental stuff. Yes. Um, you know, from design development through, you know, to R&D sales. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's broad, but it's also, you know, embraceable in terms of I'm in this industry. This is the engineer. You know, compare, if you like, to becoming a mechanical engineer. Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to become automotive? Are you... A, aerospace man are you a railway man yeah. it doesn't have the same identity i don't think about as agriculture which uh, brings me on to a fascinating point paul iagri embraces many disciplines involved in food production engineering science energy and the environment uh, your predecessor as president of iagri was a professor of soil science and you if i might say so comes from the world of heavy engineering now, I've just been reading a new book, English Pastoral, uh, by Cumbrian fell farmer James Rebanks, which bemoans the cult of cheap food and the damage done to the land as a result of intensive farming required to meet the demand of those, particularly in the Western world, for easy access food, for which they pay much less of their income than they did in years gone by. So, so how challenging is it for iAgri to strike the right balance between representing the interests of the current mechanised world and the need to protect soil quality and natural habitat? When you look at the industry today, you know, it, it has got some key challenges. Clearly, Brexit is just around the corner. Absolutely. I'm in global um, population. Um, and, OK, it's not going to climb and climb and climb you know, the pundits say that it will plateau out probably in 50, 60 years time. But nonetheless, there are going to be significantly more mouths that need feeding. Absolutely. Today. And, you know, COVID excluded, by and large, society is getting better off. Yes. Better off, their demand for food tends to increase, not decrease. And, you know, I spent three years, as you know, in India. And, and yes. You know, dietary levels for the majority of people at India are at a very, very low level. To, to think that you can go back and go back to some pastoral system today, I don't think is realistic. I think when you look at the government focus and the reality of Brexit particularly, you know, we're, we're moving into an era here where inevitably, given come Brexit, I mean, it was going to happen anyway, but Brexit will expedite it. There is going to be less tangible support for farmers. Yes, they do from central government. 
you know, and the, the normal statistic today is that 50% of farms, 50% of farms in the UK would not be viable were it not be for the single farm payment. You know, if that starts to reduce, as it will do next year, um, you know, depending on the scale of the operation, then farmers have no, if they're going to economically survive, they have no alternative but to get more efficient, become more business minded. I, I worked in New Zealand for a year. I did an exchange when I was at Harper Adams with a, a guy teaching at Lincoln College. And it was, it was literally the year that the Labour government came in and David Lange, the Prime Minister, turned to the farmers and said, right, that's it, no more subsidies. Now, you either adjust to world market prices or you go out of business. And the result 30 years on today is that New Zealand agriculture is really lean. Yes. Are more business focused. And they are a country, albeit a small country, you know, in population terms, it's the size of Wales, geographically the size of the UK, that, you know, has a very efficient agriculture that, that people around the globe will look to and say, well, it can be done like this. Now, yes. you know, with due respect to the writer of the book you've read, he is a guy that came out of Oxford with a first class honours degree. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. I suspect he has more than one source of income. Yes. But not all farmers do. No. People don't believe other than the, the long-term future in this industry. Uh, he is writing it from a particular perspective. That's absolutely true. And, but I, I think we would both agree that, uh, I mean, one of his end lines is the biggest challenge now is to make productive farms much better places for nature. And I think we'd all concur I, I with that. that. at all. And there's no, there's no doubt whatsoever that farm machinery over my career particularly. I mean, back in 1975 or six, Math put out a document called Modern Farming at the, and the Soil. I mean, it was an A4 book, I can see it now because I <laughs> used And they were talking about exactly the same things yes. 40 years ago. Yeah. We're talking about, hey, it yes. is about damage structure, reduction in organic matter, compaction, you know, and lack of microbial activity in the soil. And we do need to redress that. But I think when you look at what's happening today on farms, you know, an increasing number of farmers, my brother-in-law, for example, is, is an arable farmer. He sold his plow about five years ago. Yeah. He's on heavy clay down in Gloucestershire in the Seven Valley. Um, but, but he, you know, he's gone to a mint-till system. Absolutely adamant that his soil structure is much improved. You know, and that's... A relatively small step if you like you know there are sectors of the world where the geography allows where they're in to control traffic you know tractors running on three meter three meter track settings as an engineer it makes me wince <laughs> but, but that's what they're doing um and you know there's a place for it indeed which sort of kind of brings me on to you you spent a career in the tractor business uh, where is the tractor going? Would you, would you agree that tractors, that the, the time of the tractors getting bigger, faster and heavier is probably reached its zenith and, and we will have to look for smarter ways of, of, of uh, controlling machines and so on? Yes, I think physical size and power, we, my view is we've probably maxed out. Yes. And I think, you know, just from the point of view, I mean, certainly within Europe, and, and the scale of the roads and the getting machines around from field to field and so on, um, notwithstanding the damage to the soil. I mean, you, you can put big, big boots on, you can go to larger and larger tires, low ground pressure tires, but ultimately 
deep soil compaction is related to the absolute mass that you're putting on the axle. Yes. Uh, you know, running low ground pressure will certainly help you in the, in the, the upper reaches of the profile, but deep compaction is about absolute mass. And I think we have maxed out. I mean, clearly the strides of electronic sophistication, you know, I left the fast track project in 2000. You know, when you look at fast track today compared to what it was when I left it, I sit in the cab and I wonder where I am. It is totally <laughs> and it's all about the touch screens and the electronic sophistication, the ability to program hydraulic functions to sequence and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, tractors today have pretty well got to the state where we're a driver's secondary in terms of the optimum operation of the machine. Now, now, having said that, you know, in a lot of Europe, we do have diverse landscape. We're, we're not Nebraska, we're not Ohio, we haven't got these wide open spaces where, you know, the prairies go on and on and on and on and on. And it's field after field after field of corn or one continuous field of corn. Yes. We do have, you know, diverse topography. We've got diverse climate on any given day in this country. Yes. And we've got diverse soil types. Completely automate a machine and yes. not an operator on it you know, is going to require tremendous data interchange. It's going to require live feed to know exactly which part of the field the machine's on. And I know they know that today, but in terms of not just the geographic location, but the slope, the soil type, the weather over the last 10 days, to, to be able to predict wet patches or where the wet patches are likely to be. And when yes. you through the bottom or cultivating through the bottom of a hollow in a field, you know, we do have a very, very varied farming. You, you mentioned India just now uh, and your time there and you spent, I understand, about three years there. Do you see India, because it, it does house now some of the biggest volume tractor makers, um, do you see them becoming a, a, a bigger force in the world market? Not in the short term, I don't. Maybe I'm completely wrong in that. It wouldn't be the <laughs> When you look at the tractors that are being built in India today, they are pretty well all in the 30, 40, 50 horsepower two-wheel drive. Yeah. They are the tractors of, of my, and, and with respect to your youth. Yes. And they are Tafe making a massive 35, and then Mahindra making a, an international harvester 276. Yes. The tractor I ever drove when I was yes. eight, 1963. And it, it, you look at that tractor, and it is the same machine. Because the average farm size in India is very, very small. Agriculture in India was torn up in the 60s by Indira Gandhi, and basically she, she took the larger the land off the, loan, off, off the landowners and gave it to the working farmers. So today a working farm in India is 10 acres. So they're catering very much for a home market rather than having designs on the global market, really. Having said that, and I know you've done a podcast on this just, just recently, electric tractor, all electric tractor in the UK, came out of the Escorts factory. Uh, yeah. In South Delhi, which I used to pass on my way to work every day. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. So, you know, they have good technology in India, there's no question. And obviously, they've got a, a good cost base of production as well. But do you see more consolidation going on in the global market? Um, it's difficult to say where it's going, but it's all evolution rather than revolution, I guess, uh, Paul. Yeah, it is. But these things come in phases, don't they? Mm. Covering phases. I mean, when I was at university in the mid 70s, I was told don't go into tractor design because it's all been done. Yes. Designing a you know a hinge flap for the top of the exhaust pipe or a new cab to handle or something. But yes. actually, 
with what's happened in tractors over the last 30 years. It's absolutely phenomenal. Looking back over a very long and very career, what, what's been the sort of greatest thrill that you might have had in, in the business? What, what gave you the biggest buzz? Uh, look, I think I've been extremely lucky, I would, I would say. Now, I've also observed that the harder you work, the luckier you tend to get. <laughs> the old Gary Player thing, yes. I've been very lucky for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I've been involved with some new stuff. And not everybody has that benefit. A lot of people just go through and they're, they're processing what's already been done. And, but I was involved when we first started up proper engineering teaching, if I can call it that, at Harper Adams. Uh, prior to 78, they were teaching mechanization to agriculture students, but there were no engineering students as such. So I was there right at the beginning of that and gave that 10 years. Um, and of course I was, so that was really satisfying. And I mean, to see those students, the early ones now, you know, some of those people are in really quite senior positions and it's great to see the way their careers have grown through the industry. Yeah. Because I moved from that and for the next 10 years, I got involved up to my eyes in fast track. Yes. KCB. And that was an absolute thrill because it just was. It was an innovation, wasn't it? It took, uh, it took tractors into a new dimension. It did. It did. But, uh, you know, I've told a lot of people when I eventually fully retire, you know. <laughs> Doesn't uh, happen to agricultural engineers, you know. Uh, probably not. But, you know, I will have two tractor models on my mantelpiece. You know, I'll have a T20 and I'll have a fast track. Wonderful. Wonderful. Because in their day, has both absolutely changed the face of what everybody else thought a tractor could be. And, you know, specifically on fast track, you know, none of the key manufacturers today you know, don't offer front axle suspension or don't offer 50 kilometer an hour road speeds. No. That has now become part of the spec sheet. Yes. Or any, if I can call it, professional tractor. You know, to have been involved with that and driven that, you know, because it was a small team. It wasn't a huge team. I mean, that, that was tremendous. And, and it's all disappointments, things that you'd either wish you'd achieved. Is there any, anything that comes to mind? No, you don't dwell on that, do you? No. I mean, if anybody expects to have 40 years in any career and, and, and not have some, you know, hiccups along the way. Which are all a learning curve, of course. It's, it's all a learning curve. So, no, I... I that, that's fine. And, and Paul, um, if you hadn't gone into agricultural engineering, there was probably... Was there anything that you would have rather done? Well, yeah, complete contrast, really. I suppose my... You know, I was brought up in West Wales by the sea. And as a small but as a small boy, sailing small boats was was my passion. I'm a dinghy sailor and still am. Right. Uh, so I did actually look at naval architecture at the time. Ah. Uh, but, but I was persuaded by my mother that look, as long as people need to eat, there's going to be a future in ag engineering. So, so yeah. I walked away. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and and there was there any motto or saying or or, or figure whose um, whose ideas you've taken on board and used as a sort of springboard for for your career? I guess it's a pretty obvious choice, isn't it? But Cup ADM, I suppose that the lad in sees the day. Yes. Yeah. It is compelling. Yes. Uh, particularly after thirty years of JCB. Yes. Mr. JCB, the company founder, was, was um, you know, there are a number of his sayings, writ, literally writ large on posters on the wall. Are there? Of the world. Yes. And one of those is, is, 
It's not carpe diem, but it is about a sense of urgency and it's about getting stuff done. Yes. The point he makes that it's not always the cleverest people that achieve the most. No. In this world, but it's those people that have a sense of urgency and get on with stuff who actually seem, seem to achieve most. And, you know, when, when you look back at what he achieved in his lifetime. That's you, absolutely you, right. With him, really. Yes. I used to sell Bamford muck spreaders when I was uh, with a dealership and that's, you know, part of the old family. And uh, yes, um, excellent. But look, uh, Paul, thank you very much for your time and your, your thoughts, which are entertaining as ever. And it's really good to catch up with you. Uh, it's been good to talk to you, Chris. Thanks. Well, I found that really fascinating. Um, we covered a lot of subjects, including the lack of diversity in our industry, Brexit and the New Zealand farming experience, Indian tractors. But I did particularly like uh, the advice given by Paul's mother that he should uh, not go into naval architecture, but into agricultural engineering because people always want something to eat. That could be the best motto we'll ever have. I'm Chris Biddle, thanks for joining me, and this is Inside AgriTurf. Mm -hmm.